All right. Um, well, I guess the move was a good move. Right? I don't think we would all fit in 103. So that's okay. Um, what I want to do, if I could, is to send around... I have two sheets. To, did anybody get an email from me yesterday? Okay. So you should be getting um, an email from me each week from uh, Kane. She's got it in the system. Because you have signed up on the attendance sheet, you'll get updated emails. And so that's going to mean a good thing and it's going to mean a bad thing. Here's the good thing. You will get the notes from each week and notices of the audio tapes. That's the good news. The bad news is, every week, you will get homework. <clears throat> so, that was why I mentioned, and who knows what was the homework I mentioned yesterday? Genesis 2 and 3. Genesis 2 and 3. So, if you had a chance to read Genesis 2 and 3... Did you read one, two, and three? No. Oh, because then you'd have been then you'd have been triple holy. That'd be good. So what I have here now, I'm going to send around, is a handout that shows each of the weeks of the syllabus and a little description of the course. So take one and pass it on. I've got 45, so some of the spouses will probably need to share. You know, not all. <clears throat> um, and then I have this week's handout, which has the section from the Confession and the Catechisms, and it has some questions here that you should be able to answer after today's class. So you can either jot them down as I'm talking or sit around the lunch table and answer them. Those are those two things. All right, now, the last item I've got for you. Now, you know how difficult this is for me. This is such a challenge, so appreciate this. How hard it is for me to speak loud enough to be heard. So if I can do that, then you're going to need to do that. Okay? Because that's part of the problem with being in a bigger room. You're going to need to speak up. Now, we could get the microphone out and pass it around, but then you have to wait like three minutes before you can speak. So you just have to talk loud. Randy, practice for me. Randy, can I hear you? There you go. See? All right. Everybody ready to get rolling? Let's pray. <laughs> yes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your covenant. And we thank You, Lord, for all of the ways in which You have blessed us and You take care of us. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us to know You better that we might serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this week, God has a plan for every part of your life, and we are going to look this week at the covenant of works. Okay? Now, who here has ever taken a class, a Sunday school class with me? How do I begin? Review. We always begin reviewing what we had. So, what is a covenant? A covenant is, what was our definition? Where's, uh, where was my children's catechism? There she is. What? An exactly. It is an agreement between two or more persons. But it is also more than that. It is a relationship as well. There is a relationship aspect. It is, it involves promises, but it is more than a promise. 
And it is a promise in which God binds Himself by what? Before blood? Oath. He binds Himself by an oath, right? Hebrews. And He seals it in blood. It's a bond in blood. Sovereignly administered. Alright? Now, here's the test part. Remember I told you you were going to have good friends? Your elements of a covenant? I'm going to warn you, by the time we're done, I'm going to be able to call you at 2 a.m. and say, what are the elements of a covenant? And you're going to spit them out. That's how often we're going to hit them. Okay? So what are the four elements of a covenant? Who knows? Parties. Promise or blessing. And curse or penalty. Come on. Give it to me. Right? So why is it important to understand this? Because in about five minutes, we're going to look at the covenant of works. What should the covenant of works have, if it's a covenant? Parties, condition, promise, and penalty or curse. Okay, That is how we determine if something is a covenant. That's the description of a covenant. We looked at examples of a covenant. One of the examples we used was a mortgage on our house. Who are the parties? You and the bank or the lender. What are the conditions? The bank gives you the money. You make the payments. What is the promise or the blessing? You get the use of the property and return of the loan. For the bank, the promise is they get the interest. Okay? What are the penalties? Yeah, we know all about that after the last real estate bubble, don't we? The penalty is foreclosure. We looked at another different kind of an example of a covenant. Now, the mortgage is more of the agreement aspect. What example did we look at that was more of the relationship aspect? Marriage. You guys are good. You studied, didn't you? I like that. I like that. You know... Maybe what we need to do is by the time we're done, we're a well-home machine. Maybe we can have a Sunday school competition and all of y'all and me could beat Pastor Rankin and Andrew. What do you think? All right, that's good. All right, so where are we here? Marriage. Come on, give me marriage. Come on. There it is. All right, so the parties are the man and the woman. The parties are the man and the woman. The sign of that, of that covenant or that seal is the ring, right? How many of y'all men like to do stuff like this like I like to do with my ring? And when you do this in the sight of your wife, what does she do? She puts you six feet under, doesn't she? Yeah, she gives you a whack. My wife hates that. And it looks cute all until I drop it and then I have to go all over the floor and pick it up, right? Why? Why does your wife care? Is it because the ring's so expensive? The man's ring is actually cheap, right? Why does your wife care that you're playing around with your ring and you might lose it? It's a sign of that commitment, right? And that's what we have to understand. It, 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 the symbol itself is nothing. But what it signifies is very, very important, isn't it? Okay. We also have witnesses involved, which are often involved in a covenant, right? 
You can't get married without witnesses. Does anybody know that that's the reason why we have best man and maid of honor? It's because you have to have two witnesses to get married, right? What do the witnesses correspond to on the on the elements of a They're not a part of the elements. They're they're a part of the if I could put it this way, the trappings of a covenant. They're, they they help us to see it and they help us to understand it and remember it. The witnesses, the sign and the seal. I mean, you could have a covenant without a sign and a seal. God typically doesn't because He wants us to remember. Okay? Yes. Good question. All right, you remember our definition? Right? Let's read it all together. The covenant is the gospel set forth in the context of God's eternal plan of communication with His people as it unfolds in the historical outworking of the redemptive plan of God. Covenant theology is central to the message of the Scriptures which testify to God's redemption of His people in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So remember, covenant theology is God's way of communicating the Gospel and the work of Jesus to us. That's what makes covenant theology important. It is not separate from the Scriptures. It is not separate from God. And one of the things that we are going to see and understand is that this is God's mechanism for giving us this information, communicating it to us in a way in which we would understand and remember. One brief aside. It has become popular in seminary circles to talk about the ancient Near East and their types of covenants. The, the Hittites, the Akkadians, the, all of the other tribes. They, they have covenants like we saw with Joshua and the Gibeonites. And what people are tending to say is, well, you know, they did this, and so God said, ooh, that's a good idea. I think I'll copy what they had so people remember. When the proper way of thinking biblically is, who sets the structure of the universe? God. So why do you think the Akkadians and the Hittites and all of these other people describe their relationships by means of a covenant? you think they invented it and God copied? I don't think so. I think God invented it and they copied. Okay? So there is that interplay between what we see out in the world and in God's forms. But we have to remember what is first. God is first. We are second. Okay? Now, Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you have your Bibles with you, turn there. I'm not going to read both chapters. You were supposed to do that by homework, right? Man. You knew we were going to talk about covenant works, though. You could have just gone there. I would have given you a gold star, right? Okay, so I just want to summarize here. So help me summarize. In Genesis chapter 2, at the beginning here, what is happening? What's happening in the beginning of Genesis 2? Okay, and what else? What's, what, what do we see happening in verses 4, 5, etc.? God is creating man, and where does He put man? Okay, and what else does He put in the garden? He puts all sorts of trees and food and stuff. And then what else specifically? 
the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center. And then we have the description about the rivers. And then in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him to work in the garden, uh, put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And God says, you may surely eat of what? Every tree but what? And what happens if you eat of the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You shall die. Okay? So let's take a step back here. How open has God been with Adam? How free has He been with Adam? God is not me. The way I talk to my kids is, you all understand this, you could have this or you could have that. Nothing else. One of my favorite uh, uh, lines, a friend of mine who's a minister, whose dad I knew was in my church, head of our missions committee, he would always take the whole family, they had about eight kids, they'd all go off to um, Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors or whatever it is, and they'd walk up to the counter and Mr. Strong would say, chocolate, everybody gets chocolate. And all the kids would start crying. They're like, there's bubble gum there, there's pink, there's tootie fruity. No, only chocolate, right? That's how we deal with our kids. Why? Because we don't want the hassle. We don't want the dyes. And we don't... Just one thing. Let's be simple. God does the exact opposite. He says you can have anything but this one thing. Okay? Now, we have to understand here that that's the context. Why does God say to them, you can't have this one thing? Think about that. We're going to cover it. Why does God pick one thing that they cannot have? Chapter 3, can they stay away from the one thing? No. Right? Eve eats, then Adam eats, and then they understand that they're naked and ashamed, and then God curses the serpent, and then one of the most important verses in all of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that's the first gospel message we have. But what we see happening here is God takes Adam, He puts him in the garden, He gives him a job, right? And He uh, gives him parameters, tells him what he can eat and can't eat. This is described as the covenant of works. Now, um, Someone read the verse for me in chapter 2 where God says, I make a covenant with you. Somebody find that for me. Read that out loud. Good voice. Good loud voice. Chapter 2. Genesis 2. The verse where God says, now I make a covenant with you. Y'all can't find it? Oh, I guess it must not be a covenant then. How could we figure it out? We're going to go to our friends in just a minute. So there is a covenant, and it is described in both the Shorter Catechism and the Confession, both of which are found in the back of your hymnals and free online, as summaries of our faith. The Shorter Catechism describes it this way. When God created man, remember, Genesis 2, verses 4 and 5, He entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat what? Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Upon what? 
So let me ask you the question. What is emphasized here? What is being summarized? What's the first thing being emphasized? Perfect obedience is number two. Yes. Perfect obedience is being emphasized. What else? And God doing what to man? God creating man. And then the condition being perfect obedience. And what else is emphasized there at the end? The penalty. The pain of death. That's the way the shorter catechism summarizes this relationship. One more. Come on. In Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, paragraph 2, it's described this way. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works in which life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Now what's emphasized? Is creation emphasized? No. What else is? Okay, the promise is, is emphasized, right? Not the penalty as much, but the promise. That is life. And what else is brought in here that wasn't in the last? The posterity, right? The last time... How do I get back? Come on, get back. The last time we had a condition, right? And we talked about obedience. But now this time, we're talking about posterity as well. So there is a different kind of emphasis. Who is being emphasized here? What? Adam is, right? Last time when I asked who's being emphasized, uh, David said God, because it talked about God making a covenant, right? Here, Adam is emphasized. Alright, so there are different ways of looking at this and thinking about this. Alright, so... What we're going to look at with the covenant of works are five things. We're going to look at the name of the covenant. Why do we call it the covenant of works? We're going to look at the substance of the covenant. We're going to look at the gracious character of the covenant. We're going to look at the results of the breach of the covenant by Adam. And then finally, we are going to look at the application of the covenant to us today. All right? I've just described for you where I'm going in the next half hour. Okay? First, we're going to look at the name. Then we're going to look at the substance, gracious character, results of the breach, and the application. Everybody understand that so far? All right. You ready? Buckle up. Here we go. The name of the covenant. What's in the name? Would a rose by any other name smell as sweet? What's the answer to that? Yes. Come on. You've got to get up on your Shakespeare. Now, sometimes it is called the covenant of nature. Why would it be called the covenant of nature? It focuses on the relationship between natural created man and God. Okay? So sometimes it's called the covenant of nature. Other times it's called the covenant of life. Why would it be called the covenant of life? Actually, the shorter catechism, question 12 calls it the covenant of life, doesn't it? Why would it be called the covenant of life? Describing the promise attached to it. Exactly. So it could be called the covenant of nature. It could be called the covenant of life. It could also be called, and what we're going to call it, a covenant 
of works. Why? To describe the condition to be fulfilled. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. Give you a little aspect there, right? There's work involved. Okay? All of these things, though, describe the self-same covenant. Yes? No, no, no. Adam had to do something. Adam had to have perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit, but that's right. So, I want you to think about this because on some level this is difficult for us because we start thinking God, the Bible, and we can't wait to run right to grace. I don't want you to run to grace because if you don't understand works, you won't understand grace. Next week we're going to look at the covenant of grace. And we can only really understand the covenant of grace if we understand the covenant of works. Yes, Steve. No. And I'll explain why. Yes. Louder. Yes. That's right. Yes, he could. There was, it was only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I want you to save that question. Because we're going to get to... I've got a point that I want to make that's exactly along what you're talking about. Okay? Save that question for me. Alright. So, we just said there's no word for covenant. Can this really be a covenant in Genesis 2 if the word covenant doesn't appear? You know, we see covenant in Genesis 15, don't we? We see covenant in other places. In Genesis 9, you know, with Noah, God says, I'm going to make my covenant. He says to Abraham, I'm going to make my covenant. This is a sign of my covenant. How can this be a covenant if God won't call it so? We have to remember that a very important principle... Now, here you're getting a bonus. This is bonus points for you. Not just with this. Whenever you study the Bible, your primary means of studying the Bible should not just be word studies. Okay? How many of you have ever heard of a Strong's Concordance? Right? How many of you own some kind of Bible program on your computer? Right? And you now you find something. I need to know what God thinks about love. Search. Love. Now I know everything about love, don't I? No. Because there's all sorts of ways in which God shows love and it doesn't use the word love. Right? And so we have to understand this not just with covenant theology, but with Bible study in general, that as we study the Bible, the Bible is a complete book that is woven together like a fabric. Okay? And we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture and not just simply try and dissect it. Right? What do you dissect? What kind of frog? A dead frog, don't you? When you're done dissecting the dead frog, can you bring him back to life? No. Okay? So we don't want to treat the Bible like it's some kind of dead animal, trying to pick out little parts and things that nobody has ever seen before. We want to understand the totality of its message and what it is trying to get across. Another wonderful example of this is the Trinity. 
One of the best ways to be confused by a subject is to only do a word study without looking for concepts. And when we do that, we fail to find examples of the Trinity. And so, in the same way, a covenant can be described without using the word covenant. In 2 Samuel 7 and in 1 Chronicles 17, it describes David's relationship with God, but it does not use the word covenant. Okay? Um, and so, at other times, it does. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, for example... Uh, It talks about the everlasting covenant. In Psalm 89, verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. These are all describing the same instance and the same relationship between David and God. Sometimes they use the word covenant. Sometimes they don't. But the structure is the same. Everybody with me so far? So what we need then is to go past names, past words, and to go to a substance. Right? How can we find the substance of a covenant? What, pray tell, might we look for? What, pray tell, might we look for? Our elements. Our good friends. Right? DEFCON 3, 2 a.m. Parties. Conditions. Promise. Penalty. Okay. I might have to get some of y'all's kids to wake you up at 3.15 a.m. So, the substance of the covenant. All right. There are parties. Who are the parties here? Someone read for me in a good loud voice. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So who are our parties here? God and Adam. Now, what is the condition? Someone read to me in verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what was the condition? Okay, don't eat of the tree. What was the condition behind the condition? What? (laughs) And, alright, now I'm going to ask only the moms here. When you're talking to your kids and they say, why should I eat healthy? What do you answer? (laughs) Bang! That's what you say, right? Because I said so. Obedience. Obedience is the condition behind the condition. Let's real, real. You don't talk to them about oxidation rates and fiber. And their eyes would just glaze over. You say, because I said so. Right? That's the condition behind the condition. It is a perfect personal obedience. What do I mean by that? When could Adam eat of the tree? Never. Could Adam say, well, I ate of the tree, but Eve didn't. Could he do that? No. It had to be perfect and it had to be personal obedience. 
What was the promise? Now, this is a little bit of a tricky aspect of the covenant, right? What was the promise? Life. Why life? How do we know from verse 17 that it is life? And I completely agree with you, David. How do we know? That's right. So, if I say, if you do this, we will go to the ice cream store. There's the promise, right? What is the penalty if you don't do this? We will not go, right? If I'm in a bad mood, I might goose it a little and you go to bed early. But, but you see that the, the opposite principle, it's the same thing is true here. If you fail, the threat is death. Come on. And so the promise is life. Okay? So, do we have parties? Do we have a condition? Do we have a promise? Do we have a threat? What do we have? That's what we got. That's what I want you to see. Okay? Now, let's look a little bit more at each of these things in some detail. You like that? I, I had to have at least one piece of classical art. Okay. I don't have a lot. That's his thing. I got the nice little uh, non-classical thing. All right. So, in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 3, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So the parties of the covenant here are, come on, one more, are God and Adam. But we have to understand that Adam acts for more than himself. So, Adam eats the fruit, correct? What happens to Eve? What happens to Cain? What happens to Abel? What happens to Methuselah? What happens to Noah? What happens to your great-grandfather? Okay. So, it's not just about Adam. This covenant is made with Adam, not just for himself personally, but as a representative. Now, here's a term you can use at cocktail parties to impress people. You say, you do know that I'm the federal head of my household. Right? Federal head. Right? What that just means is, is that there are consequences that flow down to others based on who the agreement is with. One more. Come on. Help me out here. Adam and Eve understood the nature of the covenant. We might even say that Eve thought she understood it better than she did. Because she had some other conditions, right? What would have happened if Adam would have touched the fruit? Nothing. Did God say don't touch the fruit? No. So, she adds conditions. But they understood that if you did this with the fruit, you would die. Adam's penalty as a result passed on to the entire human race. And the Bible teaches that Adam was our federal representative. What does this mean? It has been said, and I think it's true, if you want to know how good a theologian a man is, you go to his Greek Bible and you find out how worn the pages of Romans 5 are. Because all of the crux of the theology of the Scriptures come together in Romans 5. Sin and death in Adam and life and grace in Christ. And so, because Adam dies, everyone down the line dies. Now, we have to understand this this way. 
We think of sin like pollution, right? Like sewage. And it gets in your system and it keeps going throughout the whole system, right? You get sewage in your house. It not only gets in the downstairs sinks, it gets in the upstairs sinks and it gets in the kitchen sink. It gets all over the place, right? Because it's one big system. And sin does work like that after a fashion. There is a, there is a nature of inherited sin. There is corruption that is passed down from one to the other. Right? We know that's true. Why? We learned it last week. What's the only way to avoid the corruption? A virgin birth. Not having a human father. But really, the corruption, the inherited sin, is not the problem. The big problem is the imputed sin. We sin... Because we are sinners. You understand that? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The cause is in us. Because the covenant was made not just with Adam, but with all of us, with Adam as our representative. And when Adam sinned and ate the fruit, you lost your ability to say, well, I wouldn't eat the fruit. No, you did. Well, no, Adam did. No, you did. You sinned in Adam. Before I was born? Yes. And you know what? That is really, really good news. Do you know why? Because the only way that you could be right with God is if you were righteous in someone else being righteous. Romans 5. So covenant theology sums up for us the sum of the total of salvation. And so Adam did not just act for himself. He acted for himself and all his posterity. And so we see this in Romans 5. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to it. I'm just going to highlight some things. You can read it. Look at the orange. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death spread through sin. Who did death spread to? Everybody. Why? Death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice Paul does not say death spread to every man because Adam sinned. He said all sinned. Verse 16, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned. Verse 18, Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for how many? All men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. So this covenant that God made was not just with Adam personally. It was with him as our representative. Notice this. If this is true in Adam, then the same principle is true in Christ. And we'll look at this in more detail in weeks to come. Salvation is based upon that same principle. God's plan of salvation in Christ shows that God works by means of a covenant. Christ is our covenant head. And all that Jesus has is ours because of the covenant. Yes, Frank? No, it means those who are in covenant with Christ get Christ's benefits. And the story of the gospel, if I could put it a different way, is how we get out from under Adam and we get under Christ. That's the story of the gospel. And we're going to see that in weeks to come on the covenant of grace. Yes? I have one question. I don't want to ask you about 
Adam, and you were standing there, there's the serpent, he speaks. Right. Why didn't Adam speak? He's the man in charge, not the wife. That's right. She's over here by the side. He's the man. Yep. And he, shifts his, he doesn't say a word. No, because he's a couch potato, and he's not a leader in his home. And that's exactly what it is. And we see here, that's exact. Well, and here's the thing. What I want you to do, somebody could ask, you know, this would be a good question for ask the pastor tonight. Especially when I'm not preaching. Um, and that would be, if Adam would have not eaten the fruit, could he have made atonement for Eve? Was the fall inevitable from Eve eating the fruit? I don't think so. No. Because it's from Adam. What? Yes, but I don't think it was a covenantal sin. You see what I'm saying? So I think, and you can ask Pastor Rankin what his opinion is, I think, and I don't know what this would be, I think that there's at least within the realm of possibility that atonement could have been made just for Eve. Um, But we have to understand here that the sin comes from Adam because it's a covenantal sin. So when you see things like in Time Magazine, oh, Christians are all women bashers, it's all Eve's fault. No, it's not! It's Adam's fault. He's the couch potato. He's the one with the covenant. He's the one that makes the mistake. But he's in the Garden of Eden with her right there. Yes, he is. And he, he consents to her picking the fruit. Yes, he does. Well, and, and, then he, and then he does what she tells him to do. <laughs> he didn't eat the fruit himself. He said no. Well, I think there's a difference because personal obedience. Yes, but I still think what you have here is an issue of a covenantal head. I want, I want that to be very clear. I mean, Adam is the one whom the, the covenant was made between who are the parties? God and Adam. Where's Eve? She's not a party. So she's not part of Well, even if she is, though, that doesn't mean that she's going to be saved automatically. Yeah, so we have to remember here. Are you all married? Well, not, are some of you all married? Are you responsible if your husband or your wife steals something, you're going to jail too? So don't take the principle of oneness farther than it's supposed to go. There still is personal responsibility. Randy. Adam had a choice to make that moment. And he chose to throw over God. Adam makes relationships when you're dating and getting married. So precedence and the relationship with your wife and God. And I think even for those who aren't married, you could say that Adam made a choice of Adam over God. Two. Yes. Yes. Adam made a choice for himself. Adam over God. Yes. Well, regarding the issue of Eve was one with Adam, I mean, we're one with Christ right now. But things that we do aren't going to affect Christ keeping the covenant. That's, that's true, too. Yes. So, just as in 1 Corinthians 15, just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. The first man was of the earth. And then as was the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. It's good to read 1 Corinthians 15, not just on Easter, and not just the resurrection passage. Because you don't get there until you have covenant solidarity with Christ. Okay? So that principle applies. Let me keep moving. Alright, so second is the condition is obedience. What do we mean by this condition being obedience? What did Adam have to obey? The will of God as expressed in a positive command. Now, I'm going to come back. I haven't forgotten, Jordan. What was your question? 
Your question was, well, what, what was with that tree? Why did God, was it just that one tree? Why did God ask him not to eat that one tree? What if he ate other trees? That's right. Which tree in all of the garden did God say not to eat? Why? What kind of a fruit was the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Who knows? You know what the answer is? We don't know and we don't care. That's the answer. We don't know and we don't care. Because it could have been anything. The reason that separated the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil and the tree of life and all the other trees, the only thing that separated them was God's command. It was a bare positive command. What do I mean by that? You all give your kids commands all the time. And you do it, they may not think so, for their own good, right? This had no inherent goodness in it. It was merely a test to see if Adam would obey God for the sake of obeying God. It was not, don't eat this tree or you'll get high cholesterol. Don't eat this tree. No, it was, I'm telling you not to eat this one tree. I've given you everything else. Will you obey me in this one thing? Yes. It's a part. It's that's a part of the, it's actually a part of the revealed will of God because God speaks it. It's not secret. And so what we see here is one second. What we see here is this kind of obedience is a is a perfect obedience that is that is to be made. And we see this out in the scriptures. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in how many points? One point has become accountable for what? All the law. Right? Galatians 3.10, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And so it has to be perfect obedience. It has to be perfect personal obedience. Adam can't subcontract that out to Eve or to somebody else. And it also has to be obedience of the heart. What do we mean by that? Matthew 19 is the story, if you don't have your chapters of Matthew memorized, of the rich young ruler. You remember what Jesus says? He comes up and he says, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus does what? He talks about the commandments. And what does the rich young ruler say? Got it! Been there, done that. Got the t-shirt. And what does Jesus say back to him? Why? Because you think you've kept them all, but you haven't. You've kept the form. The form is not enough. Checking the boxes is not enough. It has to be perfect, it has to be personal, and it has to be from the heart. That's the obedience needed. Yes, David. I was just going to think of how that corresponds. This one thing, how it corresponds to who stumbles in one point. Yes. And and it just makes me think of how this command given in the garden... Was, was really like stumbling. It was like the easiest commandment to yes. keep in a way because he did everything else. That's exactly right. And so again, it's not about being denied. It's not about God restricting us. What was the promise? The promise was eternal life. Blessedness and communion with God. And we see these in these various passages in Leviticus 18, in Romans 2, In Romans 7, Paul says, And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. 
Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law in Romans 10. The man who does these things shall live by them. And so what we see here is, is that the command was to obey and the promise for obedience was life eternal. Now, we don't know. We're speculating. How long would Adam have had to keep obeying? In other words, how long would he have been tempted before God would have said, you passed the test? I don't know. All I know is, first time the test came up, Adam flunked it. Right? And so, now what we do have to understand though is, is that because of a covenantal relationship, God would not have kept Adam in a perpetual state of testing. Never to get the promise. So we do know that if Adam would have obeyed, he would have received the promise, which is eternal life and blessedness and communion with God. Let's keep going. What was the threat for dis- disobedience? Death, right? You shall surely die. What does that mean? What does death mean? What's the first thing that comes to our mind? Right, the first thing we think about is physical death, right? So Adam bit the fruit, had a heart attack, and dropped dead. No. Oh, so it wasn't physical death, so Adam never died. No, Adam began to die right then. But he, the death that he experienced right then was spiritual. That is separation from God. The, bro- the, the breaking of the covenant with God. There was also a physical death. Now, he might not have dropped dead, but it probably wasn't too long before he picked up a cold. Before his knees started to hurt. Before his back hurt. Right? And there's also a judicial aspect to this in death. There is a judgment that comes down for violating the covenant of works. He lost communion with God. He was in rebellion against God and under God's wrath. And God comes to him and confronts him in the garden and says, what? Get out. Yes. Do you have any way of knowing if they really understood the concept of death? I never I think yes, in eating that's part of the eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's how they got knowledge of shame. But recall too, what does God do when he sends them out of the garden? He clothes them in animal skins. What do you have to do to get animal skins? You have to kill them. I think the question was did they have knowledge of death prior to eating? Yeah, like never like I tell my kindergarten kids, don't. I don't know that they, I don't know that they had a full orbed knowledge of that in the same way that they wouldn't have had a full orbed knowledge of sin until they experienced it. That's kind of the point of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if I could put it this way, you don't want the knowledge of good and evil. You would rather just be good, right? That knowledge, they got it. Satan was right. They got that knowledge. And all mankind is sorry ever since. And I didn't think it matters that much. Like, God doesn't have a conversation with Adam and talk to him about how do you want this covenant to work. He just hit obey it. Right? And so it doesn't matter maybe that he doesn't have a fully developed knowledge of what death is. Right. But he doesn't have a fully developed knowledge of eternal That's right. All right. I'm going to keep moving because I'm, I'm almost behind. Here we go. Alright, so what's the difference between law and covenant? Because right now, covenant sounds a lot like law, right? Do this, live. Don't do this, die. Well, 
the difference is this. A law is the revealed will of a sovereign to which obedience is demanded and a punishment threatened. A covenant gives a person a right after fulfilling the conditions to the privileges. So God would have been completely within His sovereign rights as the Creator to say to Adam, you will obey me and you will do this. And if you do, I owe you nothing. I am the Creator, you are the creature, you must obey. That is law. God graciously comes to Adam and says, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm entering into a relationship. I'm condescending so that in some way we are almost equals in this sense. And I'm going to make a promise to you that I don't need to make to you. A promise of life. So that's the main difference between law and covenant. Covenant binds a party. Even the unilateral covenants we talked about last week, God binds Himself to giving the promise. So what happens when Adam breaks this promise? What are the results of the breach? First and foremost, Adam fell into an estate of sin. That is, he was deprived of the image of God. The image of God is broken and marred in all of us. It's not wiped out. That's why people have value. Even people we don't like, they have value because they are made in the image of God. Right? But it's... it's it's marred. It's broken after a fashion. He became conscious of his shame. He says, oh, I can't do that, God. I'm naked. And God's response is, who told you you were naked? Right? So he became conscious of that. And then he immediately begins to manifest self-love. Well, what happened here, Adam? Well, you see, it was her fault. You know, the one you gave me? Whose fault is it? It's God's fault, of course, not mine. Right? So Adam, we can already see it's minutes, and Adam is already going headlong down the estate of sin. He also falls into an estate of misery. I'm consciously aware of that this morning. I woke up with a head cold. Right? You all have sicknesses and pains. Um, we see people die all around us. And this is what sin brings. Now, I want to give you, as we conclude here, just a picture. What other picture of the will of God do we see in the Bible? Where do we see the will of God summarized in the Bible? Ten Commandments. Did Adam have the Ten Commandments? Not in writing on Sinai, but in the will of God, right? And so, for example, the first commandment is have no other gods, right? Well, Adam chose another God when he followed the devil instead of himself. The second commandment is to make no idol. Adam idolized his own needs above God's command. The third commandment is not to take the Lord's name in vain. Well, Adam took the name of God in vain when he failed to believe Him. He said, you're untruthful, God. You've kept things from me. He was supposed to keep the Sabbath holy. And he didn't rest in the estate in which he was created, but rather he was grasping for something else more than God had given to him. He was supposed to honor his father and mother. And what did he do? Well, of course, he dishonored his father in heaven. Right? That's, that's his father. Don't you remember from... Um, it's Matthew that goes all the way back up. Is it Matthew or is it Luke that goes back? Luke? 
Luke, in the genealogy, goes back, and Adam's father was God, right? Do not murder. He killed himself and all his descendants in that action. Do not commit adultery. In his eyes and his mind, he committed spiritual adultery, fornication. Do not steal. He stole that which God had set aside. Do not bear false witness. He bore false witness against God when he believed the devil. Do not covet. Well, he coveted with an evil covetousness. And so what we see here is the Ten Commandments aren't just arbitrary rules that God has given at Sinai. They describe all of the relationship between God and man. They describe the contents of that covenant and the way in which we will live for life. So how does this apply then to us today? I don't think any of y'all are going to be in the garden, right? Does anybody have a tree of God, knowledge of good and evil in their backyard? Okay. But it still is applicable. It should inspire in us admiration. Think about what it means that God would condescend to make a covenant with us. That God brought himself down to our level, as it were, to relate to us. It also should try and make us examine ourselves. Are you trying to fulfill a covenant of works? Are you trying to do to obey God, to please Him? Can you? Can you have perfect, personal, from the heart, obedience every day, every hour, every minute? It should move us to trust God and to rely upon Him and rely less upon ourselves, our own thoughts, our own needs. (coughs) Adam was in better shape than all of y'all put together. He didn't have a bad upbringing. Couldn't blame dad or mom. Didn't have a bad environment. Didn't have baggage. Didn't have sin around him. Didn't have people picking on him. Didn't have shortages. And he couldn't make the decision to obey God. How in the world could we think that we could? Next week. One more. Come on. Next week we are going now to begin to look at the covenant of grace. We're going to look at the covenant of grace in abstract first, and then we'll look at it in the Old and the New Testaments. Now here is your homework. Reading Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. Reading Zechariah 6. Romans 5. And I will send that out by email. Okay? If you read those, we'll be well and good prepared to go on our journey. Okay? Alright, we're overdue. So I'm going to pray, but I'm going to stand up here if you all have questions. Okay? Have a good afternoon. Relax. Get yourself a nap. And then come back and we'll hear about unrepentant murderers tonight, right? That's always good. Let's pray.